Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intricasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com. They're a brick-and-mortar game store that exists online. They have any edition of any game, even out-of-print products. With Noble Knight, you can sell your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. Let's hear a quick word from them. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday, Noble Knight is a brick-and-mortar game store. Support small businesses that also exists online. Open 24-7 on the web. They have D&D and other cool RPGs. Any edition, any game. Even out-of-print products. And at a discounted price. That's out of control. Have a bunch of old game products collecting dust? Dangerous allergens. Noble Knight will buy the old stuff you aren't using anymore. Looking at you, Indiana Jones RPG. So go to noblenight.com and get by it and sell it. Take back your life and tell them the Tone Show sent you. Today, we're talking about the PAX East live D&D game and the Elemental Evil Player's Companion. Let's meet the panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. What's the best dwarven facial hair? Topher Cohen, say hello and let us know. Hello, everybody! I believe, and because I'm saying it, it must be true, that the best dwarven facial hair truly must be the red long beard that's braided into two braids, kind of like take ponytails, but connected to their chin, mm. and no mustache. Nice, nice, nice. No mustache. So you, you prefer no. an, an Amish look to a, your dwarf. An Amish dwarf. I think you're hardworking that way. Yeah, yeah. And Abe Lincoln, if you will. Enable right, and, it, and it's more sanitary. The beard doesn't get caught in, in, the, in the stash. So it's more <laughs> hygienic. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. That's an interesting choice. I wasn't expecting to hear a no mustache answer. Uh, Wade Kemper, say hello and let us know. Hello. Uh... Uh, dwarven facial hair i don't really have a preference but i wonder why with uh all the extended lifespan of dwarves why aren't they messing with like the pencil thin mustache or the mutton chop or uh the push broom and no beard how come most of them are pretty standard in their array how come we don't say dwarves with dreadlocks these are things I want to know. Yeah, I don't know. I am I am guessing that dwarven heritage and culture is so strong that they would feel shamed if they had a pencil thin mustache. <laughs> That's my guess. You you those are the pariahs of dwarven society who you never see because they are so shamed and just <laughs> driven deep underground. They become dwarger essentially. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew Timmes, say hello and let us know. Yeah, what's up, guys? Um, I'm Andrew. Uh, good to be back after many, many weeks of being gone. Uh, favorite dwarven facial hair? I think the thing that I would really value as a dwarf uh, in my facial hair would be versatility. Uh, I would want the the kind of get up where, you know, if I'm going to the, the Church of Moradin on Sunday, I can make a really elegant sort of get up. And then when I'm going into battle, have something that's more functional and, you know, something that'll augment my breastplate possibly. 
you know, I, I don't, I don't want to tie myself down as a, as a dwarf to one particular style. Of course, of course. So you like you like the variable dwarf, the dwarf who's willing to change it up. Yeah, absolutely. Although I I am now really interested in seeing a like punk subculture of of dwarves with mohawks and dyes and what have you that Wade Wade mentioned. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Well, come on, they had to have existed in Shadowrun or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there. I'm sure you can find a weird subculture of fantasy dwarves that have bizarre facial hair. Andrew Timez, it is good to have you back with us on the show. Uh, welcome back. And we are going to kick things off by talking about the Penny Arcade Expo East D&D live game from this year. Uh, it happened on Sunday, March 8th. And the usual suspects, Jeremy Hawkins, Mike Krahulthik, uh, Scott Kurtz, and Patrick Rothfuss, uh, teamed up. Uh, Dungeon Master Chris Perkins led them into peril. Uh, this time they were in Baldur's Gate, and you know their story continued in its ninth installment. It was interesting. Certainly, uh, little hints about what the Elemental Evil storyline might contain here and there. Uh, so I'm interested to uh, hear what you guys took away from this. You know, what did you think overall? Were you entertained? Did you like it? And did you get any intriguing clues about the Elemental Evil storyline that's going to be coming up in the Forgotten Realms? Uh, let's start with you, Topher. So I got two big takeaways from this. One. They have, uh, I think, reflecting the the pared downness. That's not the the word, the right word. The the streamlinedness of fifth edition. The game and its function has become more streamlined. You know, I think we hit the zenith the year that they had the big elaborate, you know, map set, and they had the guys were all wearing the costumes, and they had the Paul and Storm as the bards on stage with them <laughs> singing songs. I mean, I think that was like that. Let that kind of in my mind epitomizes fourth edition version of this is mm. all the trappings and the rules and now with fifth edition being a lot more streamlined the the game itself the trappings of the game they, they, everybody's wearing street clothes there was no elaborate map they used a cool um tile method so that was my first takeaway my second takeaway is you should never watch this if you want to learn the rules of fifth edition <laughs> <laughs> because there are times as a dm and as someone who has run Lots of 5th edition. There are times that I know Chris Perkins in his mind is going, well, that's against the rules, but it makes the story much more fun. I'm going to hand wave it because it's more fun. That was my, my two big takeaways. I think that I think it's entertaining. I think it's a little longer than it needs to be, but I understand why because it's, it's, it's not about us watching it later. It's about the people in the auditorium and they're entertaining them. I miss Morgan. I thought she added a really great funness to the group, and I'm sorry she's not there. All in all, I enjoyed the heck out of it. And yeah, you're right, James. There was some really interesting, towards the last half of it, there's some very interesting um, tidbits that Chris and the party kind of dangled in front of us that what we can expect in the next adventure line, the next storyline, which made me even more excited about it. Wade, what did you think about this uh, PAX Live game? And were you excited by any Elemental Evil tidbits? I want to like the format so much. I want to like a live D&D experience because I think it would grow the hobby but I hated watching it. And then I put it in the background and I hated listening to it. And I don't know if it's because there's so many in-jokes and it, it almost felt like a state of the union address where every couple seconds somebody was laughing and clapping about something I didn't quite understand or care about. Um, <laughs> I, I think the, the guys are good enough for it. I think Perkins is a great DM, but I think he could you know, DM live at a grocery store and it would be impressive. You know, it, I just feel like 
you have all these guys who come into Gen Con and I think, I think the vibe is they're making it more than it is, which I think is cool live. But I just, and I, and I, I did this for homework, right? I was like, okay, I need to talk about this. I need to listen to it. I couldn't, I couldn't care less about 10 minutes into it. And, um, I don't know what it is. I, I can't pinpoint why I don't like it so much. I also have never liked actual play podcasts either. Um, so maybe that's just the, the vibe of the whole idea. Um, and then the Elemental Evil stuff, uh, everything that I ever cared about the Elemental Evil storyline has just been given out for free. So, uh, and I'll talk about why later, but so any tidbits that were dropped, I don't really care. That's my negative nilly version of uh, the events. So hopefully I won't leave it all in the negative end here. Well, I think that's actually a really good point because I do think that live games and watching live or listening to a live play podcast is difficult because I think watching people play D&D, even if they are semi-nerd celebrities, uh, can be boring, you know? Yeah. And and it's a great question of what does it take to make that interesting? You know, watching people game is becoming its own industry, certainly as far as video games go. Look at the, the amount of people who make money streaming on Twitch and YouTube and Machinima and all this other stuff that people are making a ton of money doing. Uh, but I don't know how D&D capitalizes on that because it seems harder to make interesting. I think the way to do it is you don't make it live, you record it live, but you go through a process of editing and then somebody accompanies it with still shots, uh, visuals. Because uh, did you guys check on the, the website the recap that had the animation? Well, it wasn't animation. It was like still shots that were sliced together. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was, was cool. Uh, yeah, those were neat. And you could do that with – you could use like a basic flash animation tool, right? And I think if you cut down on the, the extensive in-jokes, you cut down on the chatter – even the dice rolling, you try to really simplify it. You could make it a show that is cold from a live experience and give us something like an anchor because the Twitch stuff has somebody playing StarCraft in the background and then you see the player, but you mostly are watching the StarCraft. I'd rather watch something that's got more visual pop. It, it didn't have an anchor that keeps me there no matter what happens. Yeah, and I think you're hitting at something that a, a lot of people are actually having problems with as far as live play goes. I will say that there is a great actual play podcast out there. It is called The Adventure Zone, and it is the three brothers from another podcast called My Brother and My Brother and Me that's very popular, and their father playing Dungeons and Dragons together. I also really enjoy the PAX Live games, but I also think that if you're not following from the beginning, there are a lot of jokes and stuff there that are difficult. And it was difficult for me to get into sort of following the live games, and I do have to be doing something else while I'm doing it. I, it's not something I can be 100% locked into for two hours the way I could a movie, right? Uh, Andrew Timez, I'm wondering, what did you think of the PAX Live D&D game? Uh, I'm probably on the other end from Wade in that I I really enjoyed it. Uh, as a disclaimer, I have followed a lot of what Penny Arcade has done over the last couple of years. Uh, I've been to PAX East before, and I also do a lot of live theater and see a lot of live theater. So that aspect of the the aspect that Wade mentioned of oh we're watching it and now we have to wait for five seconds while the audience laughs that to me like I'm I'm not as bothered as much by that just because i'm i'm much more used to it yeah i i 
didn't get the sense that there were as many in-jokes that the audience wouldn't know, or that a general audience wouldn't have gotten. I know there were a lot of callbacks to things that happened in the recap, uh, specifically with Jerry's character's sister, who they saved last time. <laughs> and, I, and I have not, thought, in particular, been following this storyline. I listened to a couple of the early Acquisitions, Inc. podcasts, but I have not been following them religiously. So, But I, I didn't find it that hard to follow while I was watching it. Uh, I enjoyed the way that all the players were interacting. I thought the, the two things that I really liked were, one, the way they used that tile system to create the, the, the layout for the keep that they were defending. I thought that was a, a really cool sort of thing. And also, the second thing, just the fact that they were able to do defense of a place, which in D&D, I feel like you don't, like you're the, you think D&D, you think a bunch of adventurers going off to someplace they've never been before, trawling through a dungeon and so on and so forth. Uh, and there's not a whole lot of times as a player, and this, you know, this obviously depends on your DM and your play group and all that, but you very rarely get to say, all right, so all of these traps that the ma- that you know the player's manual that the DM manual has, we're gonna we get to use these now. We get to play with these, and so that's that's a cool feeling. This is the ninth incarnation of this, and the earlier ones. I think when they first started doing this, it was very influential in the community. I mean, friend of the podcast Tracy Hurley plays D anD D because she heard one of the early PAX podcasts. I think that we're forgetting that I think nine nine of these in were a little bit like, okay, it's those same guys playing D&D again together. But when this first started, this was really influential. This was kind of a little bit of a game changer in the D&D world and brought it to the mainstream. I remember seeing, you know, mainstream geek culture talk about it when they did the first one or two. So I think we need to take a little perspective. So do you think maybe uh, there's a way to get that magic back? Or are we now sort of locked in? We've got the same people playing through we like our, we have our favorites is there a way to recreate that maybe in an inauguration of the new edition i don't know i think it i think we'd ha- you'd have to look to see if this influences anybody to play the new edition as it is right um yeah. you know it got a lot of people to play fourth uh it's only been out for a while but will it get a lot of people to try fifth maybe uh or maybe the way to do it is to get other similar places to do live play podcasts, you know, like can the guys Mm. on ain't it cool news go ahead and, and do some live play with Chris Perkins or that kind of thing. And will that spread to other geeky circles? I think the only way to do it. And as much as I think those guys are really good, you've got to get rid of this adventuring party and you got to start over with a new party, with a new storyline, you know, acquisition incorporated the, the Boston, you know, franchise or whatever, you know, come up with a, you know, the, the, the ain't it cool or the, the geek dad franchise or whatever, right. You've got yeah. to have a new group to do it. And I think with those new groups brings new um, enthusiasm. And, you know, I think that's a way to do it. I think if they're going to do it, they need to you know basically start over. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant to tell any group of players who's playing the game, you know, how they ought to play the game and what goals they should be pursuing. But I I think that as a a podcast series, and I, I guess the the transition from fourth edition to fifth edition has kind of interrupted this. But I think you can say to a new player who's looking to get into D anD D, okay, start at the beginning of this podcast, you know, digest it as a whole, and see if that gets you interested. The problem now being that if you're looking to get players for your fifth edition 
campaign, you're going to be pointing people to a podcast about people starting out fourth edition, you know, pretty fresh for, you know, role players, as it were. If you point them to this podcast and have them start from the beginning and listen to all the banter and all of the stories that these guys are creating, you'll, you get a pretty good handle of the, the social undercurrent of the game, no matter what system you're playing. We definitely want to know, what did you think of this? If you haven't watched it yet, you can check out our link over at thetomeshow.com and leave us your thoughts. You can leave us a comment there, or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thetomeshow. Let's move on to our second topic, which is the Elemental Evil Player's Companion. Guys, free content in a PDF for Mm -hmm. players to consume That is not in another book. And it's just as fun and cool as a lot of the other 5th edition stuff that we've seen. Um, It's essentially a a small PDF that has a few new spells and a few new races for people to add to their game. The elemental evil races that we are seeing added for PCs uh, are the Aracocra, uh, which are Mm. giant bald eagle-like people, they have the ability to fly. So you've got PCs with a baked-in flying ability from level one. Uh, then there are also the Deep Gnomes, also known as the Sferf Nablin. You have the Genasi. And, uh, you know, they have all of their various sub-races, Earth, Wind, Water, Fire. And then there are uh, the Goliaths. And uh, Goliaths, you might remember from 4th edition, big, gray, stone, mountainy people. So I want to know first, before we get into the spells, what you guys think of all of these races. Which races were your favorite? Which races weren't your favorite? And what did you think about them sort of power-wise compared to all of the other races we've seen so far? And let's start with you, Wade. I love stuff like this. Uh, Free PDF's great, but... Even if this were packed into the book like I think it was originally supposed to be, uh, I probably would have gotten the book uh, just for this stuff. Um, Might have been a little upset that I paid 50 bucks for it, but I still would have wanted to get my hands on it. Um, I was having a debate with my gang over email this past week, and some of them are more traditional. You know, I don't want these new races. But a couple of us decided that maybe I don't want them, but isn't it cool that they're there for people who do? We sort of settled on including, um, and we're we're playing um, Greyhawk. We're using the Greyhawk map for our adventure, and uh, we voted that Goliaths could come in, but the other ones would probably require a little too much maneuvering to make to have make sense. But overall, uh, and I think we'll probably go back and forth on a lot of this, so I don't want to input about all of them. But overall, this stuff is great because it caters to the type of game you want. And it does so officially without you having to, you know, look around for things that haven't been play tested and approved. And so, you know, Watsy's behind it. So it's got some clout, which I think is important um, after the first wave, especially because we can pick and choose what we like. But at least now we know that somebody took time. Oh, it's Sasquatch in this case. But at the very least, you know, the powers that be approved it for for play. So I'll just start off by saying I think the whole idea of it's great. Specifically, I have opinions throughout, but I'll I'll jump in as need be. 
<laughs> all right. All right. Awesome. Yeah, I think the, the idea behind this is great. And I do like the spirit behind, uh, you know, there's not quite enough here for a book. So we're just going to give you the good parts for free and not try to sell you a bunch of filler. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, Andrew Timez, overall, what are your feelings about the races? And looking at all of them, the thing that immediately jumped out to me was uh, the Fly 50 on <laughs> under the Aracocra. That's kind of ridiculous, especially to get at level one. Uh, when I was doing some research online about what's, what other people thought, at, a lot of people were talking about how being able to nullify melee, all melee attacks from the get-go in a campaign is... It's not only... It, it's very powerful for players, obviously, but it, it presents uh, DMs with a lot of challenges in terms of, well, how do we, how do we make this so that it doesn't trivialize... Uh, encounters by oh there's a bunch of swordsmen on the ground and i'm an aracocra i just stay up here until everyone dies alternately in skill challenges or other non-combat challenges oh i have to climb this really tall mountain well i guess i'll just fly up there uh so it's uh i think that present it's it's a very very subtle thing and then i i think a lot of new players and new dns will if this is the first time they're interacting with flying uh they will definitely get taken by by surprise the the two points i saw that kind of balanced it out to make it not completely ridiculous uh was a falling damage if you're immobilized if you get knocked unconscious or if you get restrained or immobilized in any manner you immediately plummet to the ground and you're taking i think 5d6 damage which at low levels is enough to kill outright uh, that's one thing. And then the other thing that someone brought up was that, oh, well, if, if you've got a 10-foot wingspan, you're not going to be able to fly indoors. So <laughs> for parties that are doing the dungeon crawling all day, uh, it's not as ridiculous. Uh, as for the other races, Deep Gnomes and Goliaths uh, were kind of forgettable for me. Uh, and the, the only other thing that jumped out at me from a, a mechanics perspective was uh, the different cantrips that the Genasi got. Uh, Pass without trace once per day seems like it could be really, really cool. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. The, the all-star highlight of that to me was definitely the, the fly speed. Yeah, yeah, and I think we are going to hear a lot about that. Am I right, Wade? Uh, yeah, actually, Andrew, I was going to uh, jump in, and uh, you said first-time DMs and players are a little scared of the fly. Uh, I've been DMing for 25 years, and that terrifies me. <laughs> because you got to think, you know, how do I make a challenging encounter? Because even with a, a 10 foot wingspan, I mean, a lot of caverns are, you know, expansive above and you want to make something that feels like you're in a cavern, especially if you want to do like an open area. Well, and all of a sudden your bird guy is going to be dive bombing. Um, one thing I, I thought this would be kind of cool with is if you want to make a really strange world in which the Aracocra are sort of like your default race and like a lot of maybe floating islands or something in the elemental plane of air. So this is almost like if you don't choose this race, then you're going to be at a huge disadvantage, but it kind of standardizes everything else. And I don't know how these guys fit into the elemental evil campaign, but this is one of those fringe races that I could see almost building a campaign world around them instead of trying to shoehorn them into a traditional campaign world. 
that might be where they shine. One reason I am scared of flying is, is as a DM who has been playing a long time, like Wade said, it's not necessarily just because of, oh, uh, you're going to have such an advantage. It's more that it's this extra layer of complexity on combat. You know, combat sort of moves into another dimension when <laughs> you're doing this. So really, for first-time DMs, I feel like that would be super mind-boggling and combat's going to take a lot longer. And, and that's one of the reasons I would dread it. I think the reason that low-level fly speed right off the bat gets very frustrating is that the way it changes the mechanics of the game is very binary in terms of it's not a, a flat reduction to damage or flat increase in damage or a plus minus bonus or anything like that. It's a complete binary. Either you can hit me or you can't hit me and there's nothing you can really do about it short of, you know, throwing rocks or sort of as the DM uh, making changes to your monsters on the fly. And then counter to that, for, from an NPC perspective, is to just completely nullify it and take it away. So there is no way, there's, well, I wouldn't say no way, but it's a very challenging thing for a DM to do to sort of counteract that level of power in a, you know, a class utility without completely taking it away. Topher, I'm interested to hear what you think of the races across the board. We all know you're a big part of organized play. You're a regional coordinator for the Southeast. Congratulations, by the way, on that. Um, Thank you. Organized play has said no Aracrocris, uh, you know, because of the flight ability. Um, but I'm interested to hear what you think of the Aracocra, but also all of the races as a whole. Well, I think you hit around the head, James. Um, organized play has banned the Aracocra for the exact reasons that we're talking about right now. Because as we know, part of the, the allure of the encounters level of organized play is to get new DMs. And if there are two experienced DMs, uh, you and Wade both talking about how you guys are scared of this, imagine a kid who's sitting down and this is his first time ever DMing. I don't want to throw at him a, a, um, an experienced player who can now fly. That's like flipping the bird to the DM and going, you know, why are you even doing this? <laughs> um, yeah, so I had a character I had a guy who had a um, a Warforged in my home campaign for a while and he had the Delver's Light which could shine 20 feet of bright white light anywhere right my campaign was full of a lot of magical darkness <laughs> and I think unfortunately that's the kind of BS that's going to happen with the Aarakocra in home campaigns is the DM's going to get frustrated with them because they're going to have some player that comes up with some really decent idea to play them and you're going to go, fine, you know what? You're a good guy. I'll let you play this bird person. And next thing you know, they're flying over everything, and they're basically breaking your campaign world. So you're going to come up with some you know, magical thing that happens in your world that you know, triples the gravity or makes it so they can't fly more than five feet off the ground or some stupid thing. And then all of a sudden, just like you know, I think it was Andrew who said, you're now you know, basically retconning the entire race, so why have it? All of that said, <laughs> the character's written really well. I like its backstory. You can tell Wizards put a lot of thought into this character, and I think building a whole campaign around it would be a kind of a fun idea. I I like the Genasi. I think the Air Genasi gets kind of a kick butt um, uh, sub race. Uh, the Deep Known's a Deep Known. It's it's an annoying little thing. And um, <laughs> when we kicked off our encounter season at Titan Games and Comics in Smyrna, Georgia, I think there's a good third of all the players are playing. Um, barbarians of the um, goliath form <laughs> like yeah you know, like i couldn't see that coming a mile away 
I'm, I'm happy to see them back. They're fun characters to play. If you play them, well, there's some really great role play opportunities with the, um, you know, if you play them much like a Drax from, uh, from Guardians of the Galaxy, I think it'd be a lot of fun. But all in all, I agree also that they're giving us four new races and not just, here's an outline. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Getting stuff for free is always friggin' great. Uh, especially when it is, like you said, Topher, the story behind everybody is really good. So um, I was wondering what you guys think about uh, some of these uh, off-the-shelf off the races versus like the kind of wacky ones. And um, I always found that even when you have something that's been pretty much accepted by the the D&D culture, um, like Drow or uh, Tiefling at this point, but don't do you ever feel like when you're when you're bringing one in as a player or if you're DMing one that the story is always kind of like a trite? Oh well, I'm an outcast, or I'm the one who didn't agree with the way of living that the Drow and the whatever. And James, you and I went back and forth once about the Warforged, how. I understand them in in Eberron, but I don't like them as players. And you said, but they'd be great role-playing opportunities. And they would, but I feel like with these these way-out races, it's always playing the, well, I'm the one who is the outcast, or I'm the one who chose a different way of life. I think Goliaths might be the only ones, especially in this pack, that I feel you could do a lot with them as a race, and they don't always have to feel like the ones who came down from the mountains out of shame or to prove themselves. I don't know how you guys feel about those races being played, but I find that the Goliath is refreshing in that, in that line that they're much more adaptable for typical fantasy tropes. And you don't have to do a lot of like predictable writing out or retconning sort of like the narrative. So I don't know if I'm alone in that, but that's where Goliath shine to me is that they feel more like a blank slate race that you can mess with than some of the other ones that are out there. I would agree with that, that I guess the society that the Goliaths have, especially in turn, even compared to the other three races here in this particular uh, expansion, kind of open-ended in the way there, there's no real societal force that dictates that, okay, if a player is playing a PC of this particular race, it's because they're out and, and they are outside of their racist normal society. It's because of them rejecting X, Y, or Z societal thing. As a player, I, I think it's fully within your jurisdiction to talk to your dm and say i really want to play x race i don't necessarily want to follow the exact rules as written for the society of this character and i think there's a lot of leeway with that i do want to move on here guys and talk about the spells we've got new bard druid ranger sorcerer and uh wizard spells here warlock as well what did you guys think of these spells uh let's start with you topher I want Catapult, and I want it now. The Catapult spell, which is a first-level transmutation spell, which is available to both wizards and saucers, has a one-action casting time, a range of 150 feet, um, and is instantaneous. You choose an object weighing one to five pounds within your range that isn't being worn or carried. The object flies straight in a straight line up to 90 feet in a direction you choose before falling in onto the ground, stopping early if it's impacted against a solid surface or creature. You get to pick something up magically and throw it. And oh, by the way, as a first level spell, you do 3d8 damage with it. <laughs> How great is that for those classes? If you want to make a, um, a, a basically a, a buff bot, right, of a, of a saucer or, or um, a wizard, <clears throat> and um, but you want that one thing in your pocket for when, okay, now I got to help with the DPS. I got I to gotta take the bad guys down. 
then you can pull out this pull out catapult. It's a first level spell. I, I think it's just a great, it's a great spell. And I think that's the reason I, I pick on that. That's indicative of these spells is they're very, there's a lot of flavor to them. There's a lot of great story to them. They're not just adding another version to heal or another version to throw a magic missile. It's it, they, there's thought in these spells and I'm, I'm very impressed with that. Yeah. Very impressed with that as well. It It is cool to see some sort of, fun like it looks like people had fun writing these spells you know yeah um, and, and that's what i i really like to see uh Tibes, what did you think about these spells there were three spells that kind of jumped off the page at me when i was reading through this um the first one uh absorb elements was more for a, a mechanics mm-hmm. standpoint uh it's a first level reaction spell that gives you resistance to any one type of chromatic damage you get extra damage on your next melee attack. The The melee attack bit kind of limits it to very specific builds getting the full mileage out of it, but just the fact that you can spend a first-level spell slot to have damage on demand, that's, like, that is a first-level spell that scales really, really well throughout the entire game. If it weren't for me reading Elemental Bane and realizing that the counter to that shows up in, fourth, in the fourth spell circle, then I, I would have been like, well, this is almost too powerful to print, because it it makes your reactions relevant for the rest of the game. I, I also have not played a whole lot of 5th uh, edition at higher levels, so I've not yet started to run into effects and spells and so forth that ignore resistances and just sort of rip right through it. So I'm, I'm wondering if maybe that's just sort of a, a spell that was balanced for casters from first to fifth level. Best flavor one I saw was Gust. <laughs> just, just because of the flavor text of... So there's a bunch of different options, but the one that really jumped out to me was you create a harmless sensory effect using air, such as causing leaves to rustle, wind to slam, shutter shut, or having your clothing ripple in a breeze, <laughs> which is basically the best, like you, and it's a cantrip. You can have it running constantly, basically. And you, you just look like you're windswept wherever you go. <laughs> like they're, you're, especially for characters with long hair, you get that really nice windswept look. And then the, the last one that looked really cool to me, bones of the earth. You shoot six pillars of 30 feet out of the ground. And if, People standing where you're putting those pillars, say the dex throw, then they either get shot up if you're in the open or if you're in a closed space like a dungeon or a church of some sort. If you get pinned up against the ceiling, you're restrained and you're taking 66 damage. It's a six-level spell slot, but being able to point at six different very specific targets and saying, all right, you're, you save dex or else you're restrained i think that's that's a really good control spell and also really cool in terms of you know the, the first time you bust that out as a player and you describe what happens <laughs> and and watching your you know your fellow table mates react to that that's some really cool flavor right there that combines really well with uh some really useful mechanics. It's a really clever spell. Somebody took the time and had some fun with that spell, which is cool. Wade Kemper, what did you think of these spells? Speaking of fun, uh, can you guys open the PDFs to page 18? Man, what a cool piece of art. And I, I think that's from Erupting Earth, but that's like one of the columns you're talking about in Bones of the Earth because it's it's a similar effect. And we have a free PDF with like gorgeous art 
Like, how cool <laughs> is that? And and not only that, but like a lot of good fifth edition art, it's the effect draws your eye, but it's the character that keeps your focus, man. Look at her face and how she's she's deftly created that spell at the right time. It's so cool. Um, I my favorite, and I haven't read all these because part of what I like to do is not read the spells, and then when I get a chance to play spellcasters, let that be my first experience with them, or if it, mm-hmm. or if I'm DMing somebody to use them. But when I saw Ice Daggers, it's another level one, and it it attacks one target, right? And then there's a, a save or such, but it explodes, and everybody around them gets affected. Uh, hit or miss, the shard explodes, and then each creature, including the target, uh, has to succeed on a deck saving throw or take 2d6 cold damage. Hit or miss! <laughs> I love it! And uh, so that got me thinking about um, making these really thematically flavored spellcasters. Um, yeah, I mean, everybody's always gone to the Fire Mage and whatever, but now we've got a few more tricks to create, like, uh, an Earth Druid or, you know, a sorcerer that specializes in only air spells and wind and stuff. Um, but where the hell are my cleric spells? Like, seriously? <laughs> yeah. It, it, now, I, I read somewhere online that somebody thought maybe the cleric spells were out because with clerics being able to have access to all spells at at all times, maybe their lists are already pretty exhaustive, um, which I kind of get because druids also get to pick every, d- every day from their full list, but their list is nowhere near exhaustive as the cleric spells. So I'm okay I- with that. And How many healing spells does a cleric really need? I mean, let's be clear. What else is a cleric good for but to heal me while you're hey, kill oh, oh. As a as a man <laughs> whose favorite class is cleric, I got to tell you, you're mostly right. But the uh, the devil's in the details, and I really dig a lot of the neat little things that clerics can do. But uh, to be fair, cleric has how many pages in the player's handbook? Fourteen. Yeah, 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 it's a lot. So I, I'm kind of okay with that. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but Gale Force Nine, who created the really well thought out and well done spell cards is putting out a expansion pack that just has these spells in it. And I like that idea. I think it's, it ties in the entire idea with these PDFs and then the adventure book we're getting at the end of the month or beginning of the month, depending on the level of your store, and the DM screen and the you know organized play and the expansion in Neverwinter and now these spell cards. It really says to me that Wizards is sticking to what they said earlier about every storyline is going to be all-encompassing. They did Horde of the Dragon Queen, and that was all-encompassing. Everything about Wizard of the Coast at that time was about that storyline. Now it's going to be all about this, and I really like that. I think it it makes the whole world feel more real to me. So for somebody who, uh, when I previously said the elemental evil storyline doesn't really interest me just because I'm, I'm knee-deep in my own storyline, I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, what if they did the next storyline with uh, necromancy bent all the cool spells that are going to come out of that all the cool classes and subclasses so you could do that and then psionics can be done the same way um you could do uh one that's more focused on a low magic setting and then you'd be able to like work with some new races that might be more like with dark i mean is this how we're going to start getting campaign worlds of old will ravenloft be wrapped into something that comes with a free necromatic themed players campaign and then just start adding all of that to our collective 5e vocabulary and what a great time to be a fan of the system because it's all free 
with this great art like on page 24 and it's thematically to the point where you can look forward to things or if say say psionics comes out which i'm not really big on well i know in six months something else will come out and i i know that'll be all encompassing and i can jump into that so you can cherry pick what you like knowing that you're not going to wait too long before it changes over uh so it's a brilliant stroke uh both marketing and and just innovation for the the hobby. So we'll see what you know other companies like Paizo do to step up. But I think uh, Wizards is really making some great strides. Where can you be found, Topher? Uh, I can be found on the Facebook at Topher Cohan K O H A N on the Google Plus as Topher A T L and on the Twitters as Topher A T L also T O P H E R A T L and every Wednesday. You can come check me out at Titan Games and Comics in Smyrna, Georgia, where I help coordinate the Adventurers League there. Come down and say hi. People, if you have a question or topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the roundtable, reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the fifth edition world I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Go there, there's a bunch of free PDFs. Not as nice looking at the Wizards ones, but just as much money. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Topher, Wade, and Andrew. Many thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup, and to Sam Dillon for getting the podcast out there on the airwaves. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. And if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.